0: Now you can clip out that little bit where he says, I pressure him. I push him. Get get a settlement. Get a settlement out of him.
1: Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm UL Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Inslick. Mickey, how are you?
2: Uh, you know, I'm doing well. I'm I'm a little bit nervous because we got a really super special guest today, uh, which who I'll introduce in, in a couple of moments. But uh, I must admit, uh, had a bit of a stressful weekend.
1: Can you tell us about it?
2: Yeah. I mean, have you ever witnessed, you know, the basement of your house? Uh, there being liters and liters of water flowing in through the foundations of the basement of your house. Fortunately, Mickey, I'm not a homeowner. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that happened to me this Friday. We had uh uh like about 40 minutes of intense rain and it was just like I was watching the back of my house and I'm like, whoa, my eaves trough are all blocked and uh I went out of the basement. I heard sounds that I didn't not want to hear. And luckily I was there and I had buckets and uh uh, you know, kind of emptied out the water as it came. But it was it was a bit scary and hectic and uh Made me feel very stressed out, so how's your basement now? uh it's thankfully not too much damage. We got lots of heaters and dehumidifiers, uh but we uh I worked all weekend trying to fix the uh the foundations and i'm I am no uh you know carpenter or anything like that, so we'll see it's supposed to rain tonight. we'll see how it goes.
1: Oh is it oh man, yeah, my house leaked too, you know here, yeah, here, oh wow, yeah. But you know, it's not my problem because I have a landlord.
2: <laughs> that's
1: exactly what my life
2: was before being a homeowner. So that's the joys of uh of being a homeowner. No doubt. Um it also looks like your keyboard is a little sticky. What's what's going on there? <laughs> I knew you would mention this. Yeah, my keyboard. I was uh well, as our listeners know, uh we like to drink, uh, not just beer. I I actually made a, a a beverage that I quite enjoy. It's called an Aperol Spritz. It's uh I discovered it in Rome last summer. It's uh essentially white wine, a little bit of Aperol, some 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 bubbly. Um and I spilt it all over my keyboard and uh, I thought it was fine. I rescued it, but uh my my delete button is not working that well anymore. Uh so and I, I'm a horrible typer, so that means uh I've got a you know a stuck key uh for, for, for many for many of my words. Not fun.
1: It means even more typos than usual and (laughs) the (laughs) emails you're going to send me. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I think we should stop chit-chatting and you should introduce this guest who, um, I don't know why I'm like building this up like it's a surprise because it's obviously going to be in the uh, title of the episode. But I do want to say that this guest, Mickey, has been excited about for a very long time and has been gushing. Can you still say like gushing like a schoolgirl, or is that like not okay? I even so say a schoolboy. That's fine. A schoolboy. He's yeah. been gushing like a schoolboy. I have would you would you like to introduce our yes. guest? Yes. <laughs> okay, so I
2: just we have with us none other than the amazing and heroic Alice Drager. Uh I I've been excited about this uh, all day, for a few weeks actually building up to this. And I must admit, I must admit a bit nervous as well because I admire Alice, uh Dr. Dragger so much. Um and I think anyone who hears her story and uh, the stories that she writes about will also be similarly impressed. Um, so yeah, I'm a bit aw- in awe, starstruck a bit. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, the words that I think of when I think of uh, Alice is amazing, brave, courageous. But the, the I guess the number one word is integrity. Uh, that's the, the that's the word that springs to mind. Um, and I think these are the exact qualities that I admire in 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 scholars that I tend to admire. Um, And I think in a way, it's almost like a platonic ideal of what a scholar should be like. Um, Seeking the truth, seeking to do good, um, having integrity, not being afraid of uh, maybe uh, causing a stink a little bit. So yeah. So anyways, let me. that's kind of the informal introduction. Let me kind of go through uh, who Alice is. Uh, I I know many of our readers know who Alice is, but let me give the uh, slightly more lengthy uh, introduction. So uh, Dr. Alice Drager is a writer, historian, and activist. Uh, bioethicist, journalist, and now a publisher of a local newspaper called the East Lansing Info, which is a newspaper I think, uh, Alice, you essentially rescued, uh, if I'm not to be mistaken.
0: No, it's a newspaper I founded, but it's a town I rescued that was lacking news. So uh, we created a newspaper of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's citizen-reported, local-produced news.
2: Awesome. Great. Well, we'll definitely be talking about that uh, later in the show. Um, so uh, Alice was also a professor of clinical medical humanities and bioethics at Northwestern University, uh, but she resigned from that post after her dean tried to censor her work. Didn't try, did censor. All right. Did censor her work. That's right. <laughs> um, so Alice earned her Ph.D. in history and philosophy of science from Indiana University in 1995. Uh, Alice has written uh, many highly cited uh, scholarly papers and many newspaper and magazine articles including in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, et cetera, et cetera. She's also authored, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Alice, uh, three books.
0: That's right. One, two, three, four. Four. Four, okay. Five. Four. Four. But four. the truth is, I mean, so uh,
2: the way I discovered you and your work was Galileo's Middle Finger. And I I think it's safe to say that that's your most well-known book. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I think every scientist uh, should read this book because it, just, it, it, it discusses stories and uh, talks about values that, science, that scientists should have. Um, anyway, so now none of these, like all the kind of list of things I've just mentioned, I don't think captures Alice's spirit. Um, Alice is not afraid of pissing people off uh, to get things right. Um, she seems to value truth uh, pretty much above all else, although also clearly values doing, doing good. Um, but because she values uh, truth above all else, she ends up... You know, pissing people off, being criticized by folks, uh, including by folks in her own, let's say, political tribe, and also by folks in in the other political tribe. Uh, So she makes uh, enemies on both sides of the political spectrum, it seems. Um, It also seems that she has uh, what she's described as a Galilean personality um and i think we'll we'll talk about what that is in a little bit but
0: uh anyhow welcome <laughs> to the show
2: after this lengthy lengthy introduction alice <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you very much mickey <laughs>
2: yeah uh, we're super pleased to have you so okay so before we kind of get into the, into the q a uh you know this is a show about beers
1: um, so primarily we- about beers. Yeah. yeah primarily.
2: <laughs> I can get behind that. Yeah. Uh, uh so you, well, since uh, you bought the beers today, you want to share with your, with our listeners, what uh, you bought for us?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I, I got to choose. And, uh, so I chose Corona's, uh, with, uh, I'll point out, you guys can't see, but, but there's lime in here, which is essential to the Corona thing. They were actually uh, a dollar off at the LCBO. <laughs> so that was a pretty good deal. They're like, you know, tax inclusive, like thirteen dollars Canadian. So I, I feel pretty good about that. You know, so hold on, you chose this beer not because of the weather, but because of the price. It was, it was. I, I don't want to say it was the primary consideration, but it was definitely a consideration. I'm, I'm very easy to manipulate in stores. Like I respond a lot to like, this is a dollar off today, kind of kind of things. And don't lie to me, you well. Part of this as well is you're trying to stick a needle in me, right? Because you know that I'm a beer snob
2: and you know that I'm always going for the highfalutin beers and yeah. you're just being like, no, I want to go lowbrow. Yeah. Again.
1: Like, like the, the last time when I chose Miller High Life, this is the sequel to that. That's exactly yeah, right. That's right. Um,
2: Now, Alice, you also have, uh, are drinking beer with us tonight, aren't you?
0: Yeah. Although it's a gluten-free beer, so I apologize.
2: <laughs> no need to apologize. We want you to be well and not sick you know, after drinking this.
0: It's true. You don't want me running to the bathroom in the middle of your podcast. So this is the right choice. Yeah. So if if people out there are gluten intolerant and they can uh, tolerate tapioca, which is a common substitute in gluten-free foods, they should definitely check out Groundbreaker Brewery out of Portland, Oregon. They make amazing beer. Unfortunately, in addition to having a problem with gluten, I cannot tolerate tapioca. And so as a consequence, I have to drink the one beer that doesn't have gluten or tapioca in it, and that's uh, Glutenberg. It's an IPA. And it actually is pretty good. Although when my husband tasted it, he said, you think it's good because you've forgotten what beer tastes like. So, <laughs> so don't seek it out unless you have to. But if you have to, it's not bad. And Glutenberg, who who's the brewer uh, of that beer? Yeah, who's the brewer? I don't know. And why would you call it Glutenberg when it doesn't have gluten in it? It's such a bizarre idea. Oh, look, it's from Canada. Look, you people made it. All right, excellent. Uh, brewed and canned by Brassure gluten, Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Oh, all right, my and, hometown. Ported in Massachusetts. Cool. Yeah. No, it's it's really not bad. They put a ton of hops in it, which is what I miss the most. So cool. And you know, I like when it. we
2: invited you to uh, for the podcast, I suspected that the beer, the drinking angle might you know might persuade
0: you because you do a mention in your in Galileo's Middle Finger <laughs> drinking every once in a while. It's true. It's true. And I have to admit to you, I'm taking my son on a drinking trip this week um, because I also have started a podcast of drinking with interesting people. Believe it or not, I haven't put any of them up yet, but I've been doing it. And uh, so my son is 18 years old and I discovered that if we go to Wisconsin, he can legally drink. He legally drinks at home. I mean, he drinks at home illegally. But uh, here in Michigan, you have to be 21 and over. But it turns out in Wisconsin, you can be younger and consume with your parents. You just can't purchase. So we're taking a big boat across Lake Michigan and we're going drinking together. <laughs> oh, oh my God. That sounds excellent. And, and Well, I'm a firm believer young people should be taught how to drink, that we should not leave them into the wild and tell them when they're 21 magically they're somehow capable of drinking. So...
1: So we have a giant list of questions that we want to ask you. And I feel like, Go for it. Yeah, yeah, so we don't want to keep you up till midnight or anything like that.
0: You can't keep me up till midnight. I'm a morning, I'm a morning person and I'm drinking. So <laughs> let's talk quick.
1: Right. So, so the clock's running. Um, Mickey, uh, <laughs> do you want to do the honors with the first question? Sure. Uh, I mean, this is kind of a, you really just a, a kind of a, a, you know, starter
2: question and just, you know, like. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where are you from? What was your childhood like? (laughs) (laughs) Just a short question. You
0: can keep it as brief
2: or as long as you like. (laughs)
0: Okay, I'm going to do a brief. So I grew up on Long Island in New York, and my parents were heavy-duty Roman Catholics. They were right-to-life activists, so anti-abortion activists. I was raised on abortion clinic picket lines. We prayed the rosary every night for 45 minutes. I have awesome back muscles as a result because we, we were on our knees while we were praying. Um, And I never did pick up Catholicism. My parents, in addition to being heavy-duty Catholics, were deep rationalists. And so they spent a lot of time talking with us about history and science and logic. Uh, my mom, in particular, is, was very much into the idea of this pursuit of truth. She had studied philosophy. And so um there was this interesting tension that I think was a really useful intellectual tension in our household— um, today, my sister is a Roman Catholic nun and a physician, and I am a Ph.D., a journalist, sex researcher, etc., cetera, <laughs> an atheist. So, uh, you know, we all fell different ways, but that's that's how I grew up. Oh, and so I went to Georgetown University when I was 18 years old, we began as a freshman, but I was totally burned out of school, and I dropped out of college. And I became a mortgage broker for five years on Long Island, which means I was doing... Uh, boring real estate transactions for five years. And I finished my degree while I was doing that and uh, ran off to Indiana University to do a PhD. Not because I thought that was the right thing to do. I just wanted to get out of New York. I had been to a therapist who said, you're cured, get out of New York. So I got out of New York and went to Indiana, which was great because nobody in New York knows where Indiana is. So they couldn't find me. So it was perfect. And then I um, whipped through graduate school and uh, moved on to a job in Minnesota and then a job here in East Lansing at Michigan State. And then when I had a kid, I ended up giving up tenure um, at Michigan State because I liked uh, raising a kid and I wanted to do a lot of mainstream stuff that academia didn't really have space for. And so I took a part-time job at Northwestern, which is where I had a part-time job for 10 years. And I was promoted there to full professor. I had a Guggenheim fellowship. So to the rest of the world, I looked like a full-time tenured professor but i was actually a part-time and doing a lot of other stuff on the side including raising a kid so that's kind of my background and galileo's middle finger was made possible because of the fact that i had quit my job so i had a lot more time for research and also a lot more space to do work that was really risky because um i wasn't being evaluated on the usual academic system by any means it was more like did my colleagues think i was doing good work and they did so that was great
2: um now so there's a lot in there I I feel uh so one uh, I find interesting is so you're you grew up uh, a devout catholic uh well I
0: grew up raised a devout catholic I would have to say I never really did feel the faith
2: okay um but uh in, in as part of that you also had a strong social justice orientation it seems
0: yes yeah, so my my mom uh was uh, basically a refugee from Poland so her family. Um, my, um, they're Polish on both sides, but my dad's family was already relocated to Brooklyn before the war, decades before the war. So my gra- dad grew up in the US, but my mother was born and raised in Poland. And um, <clears throat> when the war descended in Poland, she was stuck there with her family, and her father was accidentally stuck in America. So they were separated throughout the war, and he ended up joining the American army. So when it was all over, he was able to bring home his war bride from Poland, which wasn't really his war bride, she predated, and he had two kids with her predated. But they came over to America. And that was just when the Iron Curtain fell in Poland, and the Allies basically handed Poland over to the Soviet Union to prevent World War III. Um, a a The fact that Poland justifiably feels was an absolute sellout to them, a terrible thing because they had helped as much as they could um, in terms of the, that is to say, the people who were helping the Allies, but they were handed over to the Soviet Union. And so all of the freedoms that Poles had known before the war were gone. Freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of thought. Really, the ability to vote was minimized because you weren't really able to vote for the candidates you wanted. So my mother was very intensely focused on the ways that her life was different because she was in America and the ways in which her family's lives were um, squashed because of the fact that the communists and the, the Soviets had taken over. So the result of that was that I was really raised with a very vivid understanding of how unique America was in many ways and how incredibly easy it was to lose all of your rights. And for that reason, I've always been very, very focused on, especially the First Amendment, the right to protest, uh, the right to speak, the right to assemble, the right of the free press, these kinds of things, were I was really raised on the idea that we could lose them at any moment. And that's a lot of what undergirds Gallio's middle finger, and then also undergirds my decision to start a newspaper in my town that I've lived in for 20 years, because we had no way to function as a check on our government. Because we had no newspaper. Um, the internet basically killed any opportunity for local news to exist here. And so the news organization that I run now is a sort of renegade. I call it a news militia. It's a renegade news organization that has existed for four years that basically uses smart citizens to produce news.
1: Well, so that's a, a fascinating topic that I would like to get into at some point because it's something that uh, I've been thinking about as well. Like, what do you do now that? Uh, the old style local news just isn't financially supportable. So yeah, I would love to get back to that. Um, but I would like to spend some time uh, talking about your book because I I think many of our listeners maybe have not read it cover to cover the way that uh, Mickey has. Um, and I, sh- I should say I've read it too and enjoyed it very much. Uh, so maybe uh, you want to spend a few minutes just telling our listeners kind of broadly uh, what the book is about and uh, how you decided to write it.
0: Sure. So the book is really a professional memoir. It's a book about the work that I've done and the trouble I've gotten into. And it begins talking about um, the work I did with the intersex patient's rights movement. So this is for people who are born with body types that don't fit standard male or standard female. So they may have genitals in between, they may have the sex of one one sex on the outside, but internally have organs of the other. There could be different blendings of chromosomes, there's lots of different ways to be intersex. And I'd done my dissertation work on what had happened to people labeled hermaphrodites in the late 1800s and early 20th century. And as I started to publish that work, the people who had been born with those conditions but were living today started to contact me and ask me to help with the current day medical system. And uh, long story short, I joined that movement in order to help them bring rationality to clinical care. The clinical care was deeply irrational. It was phobic. It was approaching intersex children as if um, the, the only thing you could do was hastily alter their sex organs so that they looked normal. And if that worked, maybe there wouldn't be an issue. But there was a lot of people left with horrible scarring, sexual dysfunction, loss of reproductive abilities, um, and shame because they had been given the signal that they were unacceptable. A lot of them had also been lied to about their medical histories, which I found really disturbing in the 1990s. <laughs> very disturbing. So I joined that organization, uh, the Intersex Society of North America, and became one of the leaders in the intersex rights movement. And then for reasons I explained in the book, I ended up doing a history on a controversy within transgender issues. And transgender is a little bit different. It's when people don't feel that the assignment given to them at birth was the right one. Most people who are transgender do not have intersex conditions. A few do. Um, But basically, a transgender person is a person who has uh, recognized that the gender assignment given to him or her is not the right one. And so I often say intersex and transgender people suffered from the same problem, but in different manifestations. The problem was a medical system that decided who could get what and decided for them. And for intersex people, that meant getting surgeries they didn't want. And for transgender people, it meant not having access to hormones and surgeries they did want. Um, And so when I took on that history of this controversy, I thought I was going to kind of tell this he said, she said story. And what I ended up finding was that these transgender activists, a group of them, had gone after um, one particular researcher, Michael Bailey at Northwestern, and it basically made up ethical charges against him and had tried to stop him um, from doing his work because they didn't like the scientific idea that he was putting forward, which is that transgender isn't just about... Gender. It's also about sexual orientation. So that they then came after me, long story short there, um, and came after me quite viciously. And that was a real uh, it really threw me for a loop. This was way before people started talking a lot about social media and um, the attack on people's identities. This was in 2007, 2008, and um, my whole life was sort of turned upside down because my identity online was recreated. And this to me was very interesting because I'd been studying the interplay of anatomy and identity for years. And here I was in a situation where the person that I was online, which is your public persona, was nothing like the person I am because they came after me with lies. So rather than hide, I decided to go and study other people to whom this had happened to. So I started interviewing other researchers who had been beset upon by mobs. Um, And I started documenting their cases. And sometimes this took me down paths that took like large amounts of time, which was I was able to do again because I was working part time. So I had a lot of research time available to me. And um, by that point, I had a Guggenheim Fellowship, and there's no deadline on the Guggenheim Fellowship for your production. So I didn't. I mean, they don't keep paying you. The money runs out, but you can just keep going. So I did. Um And then I sort of looped back around and had to deal with more intersex problems with regard to a researcher that was doing an unethical uh drug experiment on pregnant women, giving them a drug that she thought would prevent intersex development in a particular group of offspring So the book is about this journey kind of through searching for truth and searching for justice and the ways in which those end up clashing, even though it seems like they shouldn't clash because justice really requires truth and truth really requires a just system if we're going to manage to get at it. And this was all pre-Trump, right? So this was all before this whole batshit experience we now have, where we have things like the president's lawyer, Rudolf Giuliani, saying truth is not the truth. And, you know, Kellyanne Conway saying there are alternative facts. So in a weird way, Gallia's Middle Finger felt um, like, you know, it looks nostalgic now. I mean, I, I didn't expect that to happen where that book came out in 2015 and it was sort of we have to keep pushing towards truth. I didn't realize we were going to, like, put the skids on that completely and do this huge postmodernist take at the government level where basically we would deny reality and deny truth. So in in weird ways, the book feels, like, almost nostalgic in the sense that it had a hope of truth. It had a hope of justice, but now I'm not, I'm really not sure. I mean, it's really weird when your own government keeps lying to you openly, shamelessly, has spokespeople who shamelessly lie to you and, you know, put in charge of governmental scientific agencies, people who are not scientists, not interested in facts, not interested in policy based on facts. It's a really strange situation. So um, it's it's a really you know, the book at one point talks about Obama and the feeling that the Bush administration had been such liars about the war. But in retrospect, the Bush administration was nothing compared to the Trump administration. So it's, it's quite shocking to see what's happened. And of course, social media has gotten worse, and science funding has been even more undercut. And so there's all these other things at play where um, the book feels very depressing to me to read today. But um, I hope people read it because it's, it's people who do read it always tell me that it helps them think about integrity and it helps them think about what does it take to get through a moment where your integrity is being challenged. And that's what I wanted was to help people see through my own experiences how hard that is and how it, it doesn't reward in the sense that people hand you money or awards that almost never happens. It rewards in the sense of a self self sense of integrity and which is a very small thing but at the end of the day it's something you can keep
2: mm-hmm. well i mean I, I i think part of the reason your book your story resonates with me and i think many of your other readers is yeah this this this, this integrity that you talk about and this i think when i read your story I, I guess i i wish that if i were if i was in your situation i would act the same way but i'm not sure i would i i, I to some extent i feel i would be scared I feel that, um, uh, yeah, I just would be strong enough to stand up for what I thought was the truth. And seeing you do it, like, over and over again, fighting these battles, you know, consistently, I mean, it's just inspiring. Um,
0: Well, I I do think that's partly where this characterological... Aspect comes in that of the Galilean personality because I met other people who've gotten a lot of trouble along the same along the way, and I recognized because I'm a historian of science, you know, I know Galileo's story, and I don't have a myth of Galileo. People have this myth of Galileo that he was a genius and terribly brave. No, he was scared, and he was a pig, right? He was difficult. He was arrogant. He was obnoxious some of the time. He was funny, right? He was somebody who would write satire. And he firmly believed that if he just kept pushing the truth, eventually people would turn around and recognize that he was right and leave him alone. And that was really what he was going for. And when I interviewed other people, I began to recognize, well, those of us who get in a lot of trouble, not just a little bit of trouble, actually have that same personality type where we have this weird idea that somehow the truth is going to save us. And we don't seem capable of giving that up, even though the world keeps saying, shut up, shut up, shut up. So it's you know, in some ways, I think it we can aspire to something better. And what I found in writing that book was that it it created a narrative character that I've had to live up to, right? So quitting my job, I had to do that because the Alice Drager in the book would quit her job over censorship, right? I had no choice. I had to live up to that character. But that said, that's not to say that, you know, there aren't moments where integrity just feels fucking exhausting. And, you know, I've said that to my spouse many times, like I'm tired of having being in this position where it feels like the world just doesn't doesn't get the ways in which it challenges our integrity. And, you know, that that's done through branding at universities and loyalty tests that occur in ways we don't even recognize. I mean, our professional societies, for example, I think in certain ways, test our loyalties and and. exclude some of us who don't play along in the game exactly the way the professional society has decided the game should be played, whether that's about sexual harassment policies or that's about the way we do peer review or whatever it is. There's a lot of ways in which the systems that we have are very intolerant of diversity of thought. And um, so that's part of the reason why I belong to Heterodox Academy, because they really do push diversity of thought.
1: We had a, a conversation on uh, the, the last episode that we just released, um, which I, I think I'm curious to, to hear your take on this. So you were a, a researcher, but then also you really had an activist role with these intersex organizations. And uh, I guess I've been personally skeptical of the idea of mi- mixing research and activism, because I feel that as an activist, you have a goal, which is to like you know achieve some end. Um, and what if the truth that you discover as a researcher, uh, is inconvenient for that goal? Like, aren't you, isn't there, do you have a conflict of interest there? Right. And you're going to be motivated to put your thumb on the scales to like, if you're doing empirical science, um, you know, publish the result that looks better for, uh, the goal that you're trying to achieve. If you're not doing empirical science, I don't know exactly how it looks like, but in the same way, I imagine you can slant your research to kind of, to conform to those, other goals that you have, like, isn't that kind of inherently there anytime you're both an activist and uh, a researcher?
0: You know, I've I've been kind of all over on the conclusion on that question. But here's where I am right now. Here's where I am today, I'll tell you. So I in the past, I would have thought, yeah, so activism, because it has a, a sort of pre fact goal, right, it has a cause. It necessarily would skew how you would look at facts. But what I would say is this, every researcher has interests in their research. And most researchers, their interest in their research is not actually a social goal. It is themselves. And I'm not criticizing for them for that. That's the way life is, right? So you're trying to get the next grant, you're trying to get the award, you're trying to get the promotion, you're trying to get the publication, you're trying to get better graduate students, you're trying to do whatever, right? So you have just as much interest about putting your thumb on the scales, to be frank, as anybody else does, because that's how you advance. In fact, I had one very well-funded researcher say to me one day, oh, come on, Alice, we all fake our preliminary results because that's how you get the, the funding to do the real research. And I was perhaps naively, utterly disgusted and said to him, I said to him, no, we don't all do that, right? We don't all do that. Um, and that's not OK. Um And that explains, frankly, why a lot of his preliminary products never do pan out. But um, so, what I would say actually is something the opposite of what you said, which is I think actually, in some ways, having a social goal and being aware of your interests, right? Being aware of what your emotional goal is might actually make you a better researcher if you're thoughtful about it, because you can say to yourself, what's the kind of data, the evidence that I'm going to reject emotionally? And what can I do to make sure I don't do that, that I don't do emotional rejection of reason? And so I'll just give you, I mean, I know I talk about the newspaper all the time, but the newspaper has been an unbelievably interesting epistemological project for me. So I founded a newspaper because I am an activist and my town had no news. And I firmly believe you have to have the press in order to have government function correctly. So... I feel very passionately about some of the decisions my government makes, but I purposely founded a nonpartisan newspaper. So I'm not allowed to bring my opinions to bear. I'm not allowed to say this is the dumbest development project ever or this candidate is really far superior to the other candidates. I can't do that. So I have to constantly think about the systems I'm setting up to make sure I have checks and balances in my bringing of facts, in the way that I'm writing an article, in the way that I'm providing it. And the consequence of that is we do a kind of local peer review in which everybody gets involved. I mean, every piece we publish, like 100 people jump in and say, I don't like your use of this word. And I think you should have looked at this. And why did you decide to tie in this thing, which feels kind of tangential? It feels a little editorial. And in doing that, it really causes a sort of intellectual rigor that I think is similar to science at its best, right? It's the opening up of ourselves to the idea that, yeah, we have loyalties and biases and hopes and wishes and distastes and all of that. So in some ways, I think being an activist who also does research, if you do it well, you can do it in a way that says to yourself, okay, this is the cause, but if I find evidence that undermines me, I have to publish it, and I have to be honest about it, and I have to think about, well, what does that mean in terms of the cause? And I have to recognize the difference between wanting something to be true because it's an issue of justice and wanting something to be true because it's an issue of truth. And my own feeling is that you're never going to get good policy at a justice level if you have bad facts. So activists, if they're rational, which most many academics, I won't say in the humanities, but in the sciences, certainly many activist academics are, you can say to yourself, okay, if we're going to develop a policy about rape or immigration or education, whatever the policy is about, what do we know to be true? Because there's no point in developing policy on stuff that's not true. It's not sustainable. It's a waste of resources. It drives everybody crazy. So I think if you're an activist and you're thoughtful about it, you can also do research. And the advantage of that is you can actually also then function as a bridge to people who are not academics, who are activists, to teach them about why reason looks like it does, why epistemology works the way it does. Why does science do repeatability? Why do we do peer review? Why do we do these things? And how can we think about that stuff? And that has the potential to educate a lot more people.
2: Um, I want to just push back a little bit on on, on this idea. I think this is a super interesting conversation. I'm glad we're, we're getting into it. This tension between, yeah, you know, uh, justice and truth, and uh, you know, activism and and, and scholarly pursuits. Um, if one is an activist, um, doesn't that constrain the the questions you're even asking, right? The the, the fields that you even look at, things that you even consider. Um, and let's c- t- take that one step further and say, now let's assume that a field um, has many let's say, activists, or many people, at least, who wanna do good, and they have similar sorts of biases.
0: Doesn't, isn't that dangerous? Right, I mean, isn't that dangerous? it dangerous? It, it certainly can be dangerous, but I would say is, you know, I've studied a lot of different fields because I've wandered all over the place, All sorts of disciplinary fields, certainly within academia, have limits on the questions you're allowed to ask. And they are deeply frustrating to some researchers who are extremely um, unusual thinkers, who are not beholden to the current paradigm, who are often wrong, right? They're often wrong or crazy. But historically, we know some of those people turn out to be right. And yet it is often the case, I think, within the sciences, that if you ask a question that's considered too radical, you can't go anywhere with it. You can't get funding for it. You can't even publish it. You can't even present it at a conference because it won't be accepted for conference presentation unless you're really famous, in which case then it's a fetish, right? Then it's exciting that somebody's putting forth an idea that's really radical. So I, I would have to say that what we accuse activists of is being human and researchers need to recognize the way that they are human too. And more rigor would be good for everybody, but it would also be good if we were not quite so stuck in systems of loyalty that cause us to shut off um, questions that are the hard questions. I mean, for me, right? So I was an activist coming into sex research in terms of the intersex patients' rights movement. And one of the questions doctors kept asking in terms of outcome studies was on these girls, they were children they had assigned to be girls. They were sometimes male children, but they were turned into females um, as babies because the idea that they were sexually ambiguous and it's easier to build a girl. This was the claim, surgically easier to build a girl. A question they were asking is whether or not these women were getting married when they grew up. This to me was like the most stupid question imaginable. And when I would say to them, is this supposed to be a surrogate question for Do you have romantic relationships? Are you sexually satisfied? Because are you getting married is a question about heterosexual performance. And they would say to me, heterosexual performance, you sound like such a crazy postmodernist humanities person in gender studies. And I'd be like, well, that's a reasonable question. And it does come out of postmodernist humanities studies and gender studies, right? Right. Why are you asking about heterosexual performance and not about pleasure and not about relationships and not about happiness and things that matter to people? So what I would say is these people are shocked to hear our questions. Today, these questions are not considered radical because we, you know, pushed and pushed and pushed and busted in. And because a bunch of doctors, well, a small group of doctors became defectors and basically went went rogue, went with us, and became radical. And they were ostracized almost immediately, kept out of conferences, kept out of publications, and they had to slowly work their way back in. So to me, the claim that sort of activists pollute science is, is too simple, because I think a lot of science is really, really closed off to a lot of novel ideas. I wonder if we should take
2: a short little break, uh, and uh, maybe uh, go to the washroom and then come back and uh, continue with our conversation.
0: Men always need pee-pee breaks. It's the weirdest thing.
1: <laughs> Just Nikki, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Pee in the sink earlier, you know, I'm, I'm good.
0: Are you t- Are you telling us something? <laughs>
1: And we're back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. And I should say, Mickey and I have really been enjoying all of your feedback, your emails, uh, your Twitter DMs, uh, your uh, mentions, and so on. Uh, and we do read and try to respond to everyone. Uh, so the best way to reach us is usually on Twitter. Uh, you can at-message us, uh, at-mention us, rather, at 4 beers Pod. You can DM us. Our DMs are open. So we will get that DM whether you, uh, whether we follow you or not. Uh, if you'd prefer to email, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That email goes to both of us. Uh, and we do read every message and, and try to respond to everyone as well. Uh, and then our website, as always, is fourbeers.fireside.fm, uh, where you can find our uh, archive of past shows as well. And send us a message there if you're so inclined. Okay. Uh, so we're back, uh, with Alice Drager and, uh, Mickey has, uh, I believe a burning question that he's been waiting to ask of her. Uh, I've had many burning questions. I'm not sure this one in particular, but,
2: uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about, uh, the horribly named, uh, much maligned intellectual dark web.
0: <laughs> Sorry. <That was> good. <laughs> I, I, lo- <laughs> I think that's I love the appropriate we laugh every time. Yeah. Oh, by the way I,
2: when you were doing your little you know intro there you well uh i couldn't help but see alice was smirking and smiling um i love it it's a uh, you know very smiley um okay so here's my question um so uh in may i'm not allowed to speak of it <laughs> so in may of uh this past year uh new york times columnist barry weiss wrote a uh, a, a kind of an extensive feature on the so-called intellectual dark web. We had an episode on that uh, a few episodes ago. Um, and uh, I think a, right after that uh, feature came out, around the same time, Alice, you wrote a blog post uh, about it, and then you also wrote uh, shortly thereafter a Chronicles of higher Education essay on it. And essentially, it turns out that you were, I guess invited to be part of to be featured in uh, you know in this uh, big profile but you refused.
0: Well, I declined. She's a journalist. She can write about me if she wants, but I declined and she was kind enough to take me out of it.
2: So can you please tell us uh, a little bit about your thoughts on the intellectual dark web?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I found it kind of bizarre, right? So, so Barry is calling me like, you know, there's this intellectual dark web, and I think you're part of it. And I'm like, how could I be part of it but not know it? Is it that dark? Like, <laughs> <laughs> have I accidentally worn my sunglasses into a nightclub and I'm 52 years old and I can't see anything? How could I be part of a web I don't know about? How dark could it be if it's on the internet and you're writing a New York Times piece about it? And is it very intellectual? Some
1: nights, some nights you take a lot of Ambien, and maybe
0: <laughs> I stopped doing that because Ambien doesn't actually get you better sleep. It just makes you not realize you got shitty sleep. Um I used to take ambient, but many, many years ago. So so yeah, so she, you know, there's there's one funny thing that happens. Every time my husband and my son and I take a significant vacation, somebody from the New York Times calls. It's like without fail. And so this time we were in Hawaii in a in an actual neighborhood where that is now under lava. It doesn't exist anymore, which is kind of amazing because this was only a few months ago. And Barry calls me sort of, you know, wanting to talk about the intellectual dark way. And I just kept laughing. And it wasn't just because I was drinking because it was like Hawaii and I was on vacation, right? But I like just kept laughing. I kept being like, how could this thing exist? And I'm part of it when I don't even know who these people are. I mean, I knew a few of them, you know, Heather and Brett are very admirable people. And I, I'm i fine with what they're doing. But like people they were mentioning to me, I had no idea who these people were. I did not know who Sam Harris was. I did not know who Eric Weinstein, do you say Weinstein or Weinstein either way? and weinstein anyway i didn't know who he was i still don't really know who he is except he's brett's brother um
2: but you're a so, secret jordan peterson fan right
0: so what happened was <laughs> so sorry i have to wipe off my glasses now so what, what happened was so they sent out this this fantastic photographer Damian winter who is this pulitzer prize winning photographer and he's like We have to be in a field exactly at the moment just after sunset. I'm like, the green flash? He's like, well, the green flash, no. But like the moment and I have to photograph you and like I'm standing in this field, I'm thinking, what the hell is this? Like, what are we doing here? Like, am I going to look like an idiot? Because here's the thing. I'm a dork, right? I've always been a dork until you guys called. I had my my apron on because I tend to dribble my beer when I drink. You know, I'm... (laughs) I was wondering what that thing was. <laughs> it was my apron. My husband said you probably should keep it on. So if you dribble your beard, it's not on your black dress. Um, So like my son checks my clothing before I go out in the morning because I often button it wrong. I mean, like the idea that I'm part of a cool group, I thought, there may- no, this is all a setup. I'm going to be like being total fun of. But no, that's not the case. But, you know. The more I thought about it, the more I thought, this doesn't make any sense. Basically what Barry kept telling me was, well, these people are really offensive and you're really offensive. And I'm like, but I'm offensive with a purpose as are some of these people. I mean, I think everybody thinks they're offensive with a purpose, but I was like, but being offensive is not like a thing to be lauded. Having integrity is, but she wasn't talking about integrity. She wasn't talking about the idea that, you know, we had faced challenges and given things up. I mean, to be frank, as far as I could tell, Brett and Heather and I were the only people in the group who had radically given things up, which is to say we all resigned our positions. so they I could relate to, right? They had they had been in a completely ridiculous situation and had decided to resign, as had I. And in fact, to this day, I feel guilty because when they were going through what they were going through, I was so PTSD'd at that point for my own resignation, I couldn't call them. I didn't know them, but I should have called them. I should have offered support, public support, private support. I didn't. Because I was so depressed about my own resignation at that point. I couldn't do that. So the more I thought about it, the more I thought, this sounds like a sort of superficial feature story that is just about sort of pissing more people off and about getting clicks. And at that point, I had already become convinced that opinion is the enemy of news That the fact that we have taught people to want opinion rather than news on MSNBC, on Fox News, on CNN, on The New York Times, on The Washington Post, people want opinion rather than news is the reason we have so many problems, but particularly President Trump. And I didn't want to participate in a situation where I felt like what I was doing was participating in that. So, you know what I kept saying to Barry, (laughs) it sounds terrible, but I kept saying to her, Barry Weiss, you are the problem. I kept saying, the opinion page of the New York Times is the problem. You guys go out there and you sell anger. You sell fury. You sell self-righteous identity. And all that bullshit gets in the way of actually providing people the reality of what's going on. So the New York Times news section slants farther and farther left. Fox News slants farther and farther right because what sells is opinion. And that results in a situation where there is no neutral ground for knowledge or for facts or for any of that. So I didn't really feel like I could participate in something that, to my mind, was fundamentally undermining the reason I did resign and the reason I wrote that book and the reason I've been through the crap and the reason I founded the newspaper. You know, what I'm saying to her is like, the tiny little newspaper I run has more integrity than the New York Times at this point, because we don't sell people opinions and buy outrage. We don't purposely foment identity politics. We don't purposely cause battles between anti-vaxxers and anti-anti-vaxxers in order to sell papers. So that's really why I backed off of it and said, could you just leave me out of it? And then when it came out and I saw the pictures, I thought, wow, those are so funny and like really brilliant in some ways, but also really funny. And I keep wondering what my picture was, but Barry's not talking to me, so I'm never going to see my picture.
1: There's there's one more thing I, I want to ask you about your objections to opinion journalism.
0: Wait, wait, that's, that's a contradiction. Try that again.
1: <laughs> to opinion writing. Um, seem to come in part from this idea of it just reinforces these ideological silos. The New York Times is telling its readers what they want to hear. Fox News is telling their readers what they want to hear. I think it's kind of ironic to say that to Barry Weiss, who doesn't fit it well ideologically at the Times. And in fact, you know, people yell at the Times all the time for having her on the editorial board. And they've made an effort to hire people like Brett Stevens, uh, Ross Douthat, who are, you know, not the typical down the line kind of liberal opinion writers. Does that change the picture for you, or do you just like not like opinion writing in general?
0: It, it does to some extent, but if Barry hadn't told me that the opinion page is paying for the news page, I would have been less depressed. So she told me that the opinion page is basically paying at this point for the news page and that what they're doing is carefully curating the opinion page in order to pay for news. And I find that noble, but incredibly sad. Like, I think it's it's good that the opinion page people are willing to do that, Um but I find it very, very disturbing. The other, the other thing is, so here's the thing, right? So when I started writing for the New York Times in 1998, the first piece I wrote, um, which was a piece called When Medicine Goes Too Far in Pursuit of Normality, is a really tight piece that holds up to this day. It was a thousand word piece and they paid me a thousand dollars for it in 1998. Today, if I write a piece for the Times, they almost never pay me. I, I will not write for free. So I make them pay me something, but they pay me a couple hundred dollars. That is about one-tenth what that money would have been worth then, right? So most people write for free for the Times. Not the regular writers, but a lot of the people who contribute just are happy to get their names in the Times. The consequence of that is that basically there is this weird economic system where people are willing to do stuff for free, and therefore there kind of is no there's no value to it, right? It is a value only in the sense that it's a value for flash in the pan and then it's done. Journalism really does cost money. And until we start educating people much more clearly that journalism is something that costs money and we got to figure out how the hell we're going to pay for it, we're going to be losing journalism again and again. So when I started out 20 something years ago oh my gosh almost 30 years ago doing patient advocacy work there were investigative health journalists all over the place and they were capable of looking what i was bringing them but looking at it with fresh eyes and questioning it and getting a different opinion on it and bringing it all forward and that was really useful it taught me things it taught the people on the other side things we learned through that process And because of the internet and people not wanting to pay for news, that all collapsed. And today there are very few real health journalists out there. And the ones who are out there have a really hard time getting their stuff published if it at all varies from the standard lines that are acceptable. So uh,
1: tell us what you in your uh, guerrilla news organization are, are doing differently. And particularly, you know, how do you keep the lights on? Um, like what actually pays the bills for you guys?
0: Well, we are reader supported. So we're a nonprofit, which until the Trump administration changed the laws, meant everybody who donated got a tax deduction. Now it's harder for some folks to take the tax deduction. But basically we have people around town who believe that news is important. Trump actually helped on this. People became a lot more aware of why they should donate to news once Trump happened. So that really helped. But basically, um, a bunch of small businesses in town sponsor us, plus about 700 people who are individuals give money to us. And we run on about $80,000 a year right now. Nobody gets paid a lot, obviously. I don't get paid at all right now. I'm doing my work for free. Um, I make my money and other stuff, reading, writing, not reading, I wish, writing and speaking. And... Um, Basically, what we do is we use a model that's a blended volunteer and paid model. So some of us volunteer our work. So I have several reporters and editors and stuff who volunteer their work. I've got a tech manager who volunteers work and other folks, including a tech manager and my editor in chief and a bunch of my reporters get paid. And we basically pay people um, according to the work that they do. And nobody gets paid a huge amount. But everybody that works for the organization feels the mission in their gut of providing the community with nonpartisan, nonprofit news. So we've had everything from high schoolers to octogenarians. We have stay-at-home parents do a lot of work for us because they're stuck home with kids. And they've got, you know, an hour here and an hour there. And they can listen to a meeting recording and report it for us on what happened at this meeting. Or they can do an interview with the police about some shooting that happened today. I had a um, stay-at-home mother who's an artist who covered a story for us about a shooting downtown and you know called the police and wrote up the whole story super well. So we just take people and we train them to do local reporting. Local reporting is not super complicated. A lot of times it's just very straightforward. this is what happened at this meeting this is what's happening in this organization. this is what happened with this um, police activity. And then for the investigative news stuff, there's a smaller group of us who are kind of the dogged researchers who will do what I did today, which is go down to the Ingham County Register of Deeds and dig through records to try to track various stories. And those of us who do investigative reporting work together and basically bring forward investigative news for the city um, so we've had 110 people function as reporters in the city. Only a small handful of them are actually trained as journalists. The rest of them are not trained as journalists. We just teach them how to do it. Um, and basically, we just keep bringing forward the news day by day by day. It's hard. And we have to do fundraising appeals. And you know, we have to every now and then shut things down and say we need more money and people have to give us money. But it's been a super successful thing. And I'll tell you, it doesn't just produce news. What it does is produce a local conversation about epistemology, which is what I'm all about, right? Like, when I look back on my work, I realize what I'm constantly struggling with is the epistemology of democracy. How do we know what we know about each other? How do we decide what is true? And so what happens when you drag in people who are high school students and parents of little kids and retired folks to do news is they go and at the dinner table have a conversation about what they're doing and how, well, there's this ethical issue with what I'm doing because there's this person I don't like, but I have to talk to them. Or there's this question. this, This student asked me the other day, it was wonderful. He said, how do you know when you know enough to report a story? which I thought, oh my God, that's fantastic, right? I told him, you're way ahead of everybody. Like, this is not a high school question. This is a graduate level question and you're there. So to me, it's super exciting because what's happening all the time is people are engaging with this question of how do we know what we know? How do we keep people accountable? How do we stop ourselves from making people look like good people and bad people, but they're just people, right? And how do we bring forward what we what we know for each other in a way that we can trust each other? So we're having constant conversations about trust, knowledge, uh, reputation, sourcing, all these things are constantly in conversation. And that has really changed East Lansing in terms of how it operates as a community that has a government. That, to my mind, is the mind-blowing thing. And that's why I want to propagate it across the country, is not even the news production. It's the engagement of citizens at the gut level with the questions of epistemology of democracy. So that's why I do it.
1: So you guys are funded entirely by donations and support from your readers? You don't do ads at all?
0: Nope, no ads.
1: Let's say if our listeners were interested in supporting such a thing, how would they be able to do that?
0: Oh, I would love it. org slash contribute. Awesome. <laughs> I happen to know it by heart. Yes. Yeah, you... I can tell that's not the first time <laughs>
1: you've said that. You know?
0: <laughs> give us $10. Give us $20. Yeah, we're also on we're on Patreon We're on PayPal and we take checks. Um, But mostly we we purposely fundraise mostly locally. I'm not going to discourage anybody from sending us money, but we mostly report locally. And the reason why is what I call the self-destruct button. This is the peer review system, right? If we report stuff that is horribly biased or inaccurate or unfair, people will withdraw their dollars locally and we will fail. We We will fold. And that system, that built-in system of requiring local people to feel like we're doing a good job in order to do our job means we can't do a bad job. That keeps us super, super honest.
2: We're, I think we're running out of time a little bit, but uh, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about uh, the future, future of Alice Rager. Um So, uh, you know, what do you have in store? What other trouble do you have brewing?
0: I'm working on a secret book. I can't tell you what it is yet because we're not sure it's going to be that. Uh, yeah, no, I'm launching my kid into the University of Chicago, which I'm super excited about because they are the leader in academic freedom. That's not why he's going there. He's going there for the physics. But he got today in the mail a book from them about academic freedom, which I was like, I want to go to school there. Um and uh, I'm, I'm in the vice, at, people call it the sandwich generation. I'm actually in the vice generation, which squashes you. My kid is going to college, so we're launching him and my parents are in their late lives. So I deal with that a lot. And then I run a newspaper and I'm working on a book project. And I also on the side, I'm working on a lucrative mystery series about a character who happens to be a historian of anatomy, which is what I was originally. So <laughs> we'll see. Any, any plans for running for office? No, I think I would suck at that. No, I think I would.
2: I'm, I can't be the first one who's asked you this.
0: No, people sometimes here ask me to run for city council and I tell them I'm much too bitchy. Um, and, um, you know, I'm a- But isn't that what we need? I'm a New Yorker in the Midwest. I, I don't think I'm ready for government. I'm good as a newspaper person. Every Midwestern town should have a New Yorker like me, but um, not maybe not more than one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right well i wonder you know uh before we go uh is there anything that we've missed something you want to like you know end with uh, any lasting thoughts
0: no yeah, so just tell me why why you decided to do a drinking podcast i don't i approve but just tell me why
2: oh that's a good question i thought, you know i'm we've ever actually discussed this oh, on air talk talk um, among yourselves i'll listen uh well so you all and i are in college but. Four years now, you will, or three four. years, four, four. years, um, and we've been hanging out uh, about once a month, once every six weeks, and we were discussing politics, science, replication, psychology, over beers, pretty much you know every time we met, and it just felt like, uh, and actually, some of our friends had started a podcast as well. In uh, so it was um, another a science podcast that we, the Black Goat, who friends of ours who we like a lot and admire, and it just sounded like they were having like so much fun. But you were like, like, but we would do it better. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's better, but we wanted to get in on the action. We also wanted to have fun. <laughs> and uh, I think the beer is just, I think, for me at least, uh, less so for you, Al, but for, for me, beer is a natural. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of born into that, really. Our previous name, this is a, a reveal uh, for our viewers, was uh, Too Loud Jews."
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I could totally be the third one. I'm culturally Jewish, having grown up on Long Island.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you're from New York. Yeah, I know Close it's true. I,
0: I, yeah. I can do it. Yeah,
2: yeah. I felt we would attract the wrong crowd. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. My uh, graduate student Steph wanted us to call it "Come Schmooze with the Jews" for <laughs> good. too. That's
0: fantastic. Yeah, but then you'd have to have yeah. bagels as well as some beer. So, yeah. yeah. A little schmear,
1: yeah.
2: yeah. a yeah. schmear, yeah. yeah. uh, and bring a sweater,
0: right? <laughs> Yeah, so it gets cold, um, and
2: uh, but it's it's worked. I mean, it, what's funny is that we you know we came up with this, and but Yoel doesn't like drinking beer that much, so it's it, it was uh, an odd choice for us. I think well, he's gone through yeah, too. I, I, I don't
1: dislike it. I'm more of a bourbon person. Oh, in general.
0: Well, why don't you do yeah. that?
1: Eh, you know, sometimes I do. Sometimes I do, but occasionally I feel like I need to give Mickey what he wants. So
2: <laughs> you you admire Yoel. He you know I try so hard to pressure him to to convince him to apply any kind of psychological trick I have nothing it he's like, a rock does not work on him
1: it it, it anti works it actually makes me want to be more of a contrarian just to like troll you it's <laughs>
0: perfect and now 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 you can clip out that little bit where he says I pressure him I push him <laughs> get get a settlement get a settlement out of him <laughs> Um, so, Alice, how
2: can, can you? We, I want you to plug yourself a little bit, like, you know, give us some where we can find you on Twitter, your website. Uh.
0: Blah, blah, blah. I'm off Twitter at the moment. I hate social media. I'm at, at Alice Drager. Very simple. It's a picture of a rat. If you find a picture of a rat, that is me. That's my rat darling. I love rats. Uh, my website is alicedrager.com, but I don't update it very often anymore. I basically, I, you know... After you spend enough time being maligned online, you decide that's not where life is. So in some ways, you can't find me. You absolutely you can find me at East Lansing City Council meetings on Tuesday evening at courtroom number one in East Lansing City Hall. I think it's 410 Abbott Road, 48823. And that's where you can find me because life is actually not about the number of followers and the number of clicks I'm, I've come to learn. I like being a little bit gone these days. You know,
1: I bet we have at least a couple listeners in East Lansing. So, if you guys want to <laughs> stop by and don't. bring Alice a gluten-free beer.
0: You know, that the police chief sometimes sits next to me and then I don't feel like I can drink my beer that I brought to city council. But one time he's like, one time he's like, is that a beer? And I'm like, you don't have one. He's like, I really should have one. These meetings are so boring. That's not the current police chief. I'll just say it's a previous one so I don't get the current one in trouble.